Blog Talk Radio. to Colts Authority Radio. I'm your host, Kyle Rodriguez, and along with my co-host, Scott Kazmar of Football Outsiders. Today, we're looking at the Super Bowl. Obviously, this past weekend, New England Patriots able to uh, come from behind in the fourth quarter and win one of the one of the best Super Bowls that we've seen uh, in a long time, if not ever, uh, against the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, they come up with the big win. What was it 28-24 was the final, I think? I, I don't even know. I'm still I'm still in, in disarray a little bit from the end of that game. So let me go ahead and bring Scott on. Scott, uh, we t- you 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 told me I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, what two weeks ago? I think it was about two weeks ago. You told me. Really, the only only the biggest thing I, I don't want out of this postseason is for Tom Brady to win the Super Bowl because it's going to bring. It's going to bring all this greatest of all time discussion. So that's what we have to talk about today, obviously. Uh, Scott, what were your, I mean, what was your, I guess, your initial reaction from from Sunday's game? Uh, just right off the bat, the, the next day, not not as soon as the game was over, because I think as soon as the game was over, it was, we were, everybody was a little bit in shock. Everybody was a little bit analyzing that last play. But but the next day, what was kind of your, your big takeaway from, from the Super Bowl? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the, the worst play call in Super Bowl history made the NFL's worst fan base all that more insufferable, um, as we could see right, <laughs> as we could see right today. If you just look at my Twitter timeline uh, right now, but um, I don't. I mean, again, I, I don't know. I mean, I I was up early in the morning. I was up all night writing the recap. I didn't get to bed till about eleven a.m. after the game, and I don't know. I just just disbelief of that. They didn't run the ball. I mean, I don't know what more you could say. It's just, uh, you know, finish. I mean, once, you know, Seattle, there was a point in the game where they looked like they were taking control. You could see the tide turning, going up 10. And Jermaine Kirsch dropped that pass on third down. Uh, tough catch, but, you know, one you can make. Um, and, you know, you see that. You see a sack on third down. You see a three and out from Seahawks. As soon as all those happened, you just knew New England was going to take the lead. And it was going to come down to whether Russell Wilson could, you know, put the game-winning drive together or not. And they get one of the all-time flukiest catches you'll ever see from Curse to get down there. But in some ways, that may have been a negative because it just screwed up the rest of the drive strategy. And, I mean, you never expect to see the Seahawks throw a pass like that from the one-yard line. I mean, I watched every play from the last three years of this offense, 
and I'd be hard pressed to find a play like that from this offense where, I mean, most of Russell Wilson's short little passes are to running backs. They're to tight ends. Tight end was never even targeted in this game, which makes no sense. Uh, Patriots ranking 30th against tight ends coming in. Uh, I mean, Ricardo Lockett, I mean, you do not put the championship drive on Ricardo Lockett on a quick slant. And, you know, the ball placement was not good. I mean, it should have been low or it should have been away or it should have been left shoulder, not leading the receiver right into the hit, which I think even if he catches it, I think he gets hit short of the goal line. And it's just such a horribly uh, – a play that just does not go with what Seattle does. And I just think they completely botched the whole drive, really, after the first play. First play was beautiful with Marshawn Lynch out wide on a linebacker. I mean, great 31-yard gain. But everything after was just terrible. Taking deep shots like Joe Flacco did in New England when you're trying to run the clock. I mean, they wasted two timeouts, basically, because of the two deep shots taking all the time to get back in the huddle. So that kind of ended up being big in a way. And I don't know. I just think... You have to run the ball now. The whole mentality has to be running the ball. And I just kind of think Pete Carroll may have let an old game or two beat him twice. Uh, you know, Wendell White getting stuffed against uh, Texas in the championship game. Um, then two years ago in Atlanta, they scored Marshall Lynch first down, two-yard line, 31 seconds left. Matt Ryan was able to get the game-winning drive. And he might have taken those games to heart and, you know, coached uh, the situation based on what happened there. And, I think he just took too much time, and they made a really horrible call. Uh, so let's I, let's let's break this down. Uh, start with with the game, and uh, I, I let's just let's just start with with what happened really in in the second half. Uh, first half, they battled a fourteen fourteen tie, and uh, really Seattle Seattle's you know ability to go down the field in the last what thirty seconds in the first half score touchdown. Gutsy play calling, uh, gutsy call to to throw it with six seconds left. Not every coach would do that, although it, it was the right call, I think. And and obviously there is uh, some results based analysis there. But I I always think with with six seconds left, you've got time to to throw a quick pass rather than rather than kick a field goal right there. So I, I like Dick Carroll's call there. I like uh, the play call worked out great against uh, New England's defense, Chris Matthews who had, had shown already in that game that he could go up and get a ball. Uh, great, great work there to tie the game up and give them some momentum. And then in the second half, the third quarter, Seattle's able to go down the field and, and put some points on the board. Um, big, a, a few missed opportunities for Seattle. They they were stuffed on a couple third and shorts uh, that that gave the ball back to New England and allowed them to come back in that game. They they had the big drop by, was that Jermaine Curse who had the big drop on the side, down the sideline on that deep ball? Uh, there's yeah. that one. Uh, there was another one. I'm, it might've been one of the stuff third downs, but it might've been a different play. I can't remember, but the one where they kicked the field goal when they were, they were down on inside the red zone and forced to kick a field goal, uh, instead of getting this, the seven points, which obviously would have made a big difference. So, so missed opportunities for Seattle, but, but the thing about the Seattle team is that against any other team with an, and with a healthy defense, you would expect Seattle to be able to hold a 10-point lead in the fourth quarter. And and even against a New England team that's versatile on offense and that has has had a strong offensive year, uh, you would expect to be able to hold a 10-point lead. But they weren't. 
health. And and I think that's, uh, you can't overlook that. And we talked about it last week, Scott. We talked about how big of an impact uh, it could have to, to not have a completely healthy defensive backfield, especially. But then we ended up seeing, you know, we found out after the game that that I, I think every member of this of the Seattle backfield, save for maybe Byron Maxwell, uh, suffered a, a a serious injury, maybe more serious than we we knew ahead of the game, and played through it throughout that game. Uh, but then you had the injuries during the game as well, which obviously really hurt Seattle. Uh, Cliff Averill leaving the game, Jeremy Lane leaving the game, and and forcing a uh, uh, what's his name onto the field. I don't even remember his name now. Uh, starts with a T. Harold Simon. Harold Simon. There it is. Uh, Forcing him onto the field, he gave up a lot of a lot of mistakes in coverage. Gave up a lot of that yards after the catch. <clears throat> um, but but Scott, how much of a factor were those injuries? Because we saw, obviously, I think I'm, I'm, you've, got, you've got two points here for the injuries. Uh, coverage was was decent for the Seattle secondary, but but tackling was a problem, and and that's something we haven't really seen from the Seattle team. They've been so good, so fundamental in tackles. Uh, I think you 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 have to wonder how much the injuries affected them there. Uh, the Patriots did a really good job of exploiting them underneath and getting yards after the catch. And then the second point was was pass rush. The, the Seahawks were getting a pretty decent pass rush on Tom Brady, doing a really good job. But without Cliff Averill, uh, that went down dramatically, and and New England took advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, I think you watched the Super Bowl highlights from last year against Denver. What do you see? You see Cliff Averill, you see Cliff Averill getting two edge pressures for both interceptions. You see Cam Chancellor, first play of the game, lighting lighting up Demarius Thomas, knocking Wes Welker out, getting a pick. Basically, a very uh, you know MVP caliber performance. And here he's playing on a torn MCL. I mean, I can't remember any player doing that in the playoff game since oh yeah, Philip Rivers against the Patriots on a torn ACL. So go figure there. But you know, I don't know if that. I think the biggest injury was probably Jeremy Way. I mean, he. He he was the one that said Gronkowski's not that good, and you think, man, this guy's going to get exposed so bad in the Super Bowl, but he comes up with a big interception in the red zone, horrible throw from Brady, comes up with a big interception, and he you know breaks his arm or wrist or whatever on the return. Uh, pretty gruesome injury, and that puts Harold Simon in the game, and they immediately targeted him. Um, he just could not keep up with the receivers inside. Uh, he gave up two touchdowns in the game. Should have been three. Brady missed the throw to Edelman in the fourth quarter, but they went right back to the same play for the game winner. Uh, very brutal game from him. And yeah, I mean, I mean, Richard Sherman was targeted on the first two plays, and I think they stayed away from him pretty much the entire game after that. And you know, we've seen him uh, uh, struggle to make a tackle on the one of the first plays, but. You know, he stayed away from him, uh, stayed away from Maxwell. Earl Thomas had a very, very quiet game, I thought. Yeah. Uh, just didn't show, didn't show up, really. Uh, he had a bad penalty, I think, hitting the guy out of bounds. Uh, very quiet game from him. And I thought Chancellor, given the torn MCL, played pretty well. I don't know if it, how much it really limited him, but, I mean, he, he played okay. But, um, yeah, I mean, the Patriots had their success with Gronkowski by getting him on a linebacker, you know, K.J. Wright. Brady was three out of three, got the touchdown. Um, you know, again, some teams, they just don't have that luxury. I mean, there's only one Gronk in the league. You get him outside, line up with a linebacker. I don't think there's any linebacker in the league that could keep up with him. And, uh, you know, you've seen when he was lined up against Chancellor and other players, not as much success. But, you know, he took advantage of K.J. Wright. They took advantage 
and we talked about this last week being big, throw to the running back out of the backfield. Now, not out wide like Shane Vereen usually does, and they did that 11 catches for Shane Vereen, one-handed catch to start the game when he drive, and, you know, very productive, basically replaced the running game, which wasn't very um, productive with Garrett Blunt. So Shane Marine, uh, very productive with his little catches, um, you know, getting the linebackers in space. You know, MVP, uh, one vote, Bobby Wagner uh, had a hard time keeping <laughs> up with him. But, hey, I mean, he did make a good interception, I will say that. But, uh, you know, covering the running backs is definitely a difficult thing to do for him. And, you know, Marine's a good receiver. So he definitely – they targeted the defense – uh, yeah, again, it showed that you really need four or five good corners. Um, usually three we talk about would work, but this game was really exposed, uh, determined by guys like Therrell Simon and Malcolm Butler on the other side. Um, I mean, team, the teams just went after those guys. Um, Butler was involved in a ridiculous number of big plays in this game. Uh, you know, he was on the breakup on the curse drop. He tripped curse. Or somebody he tripped one of the Seattle receivers and got away with it on the fourth quarter drive. That was pretty big. Uh, he was def- he deflected the big pass on Curse that still ended up being a catch somehow, ridiculous, um, and obviously the interception. So again, a guy that you just didn't really expect. I mean, I, mean, I noticed Denver picked on him in the second half. To some of his success, not so much in, in that game when then Manning threw like fifty some passes. They were throwing at Malcolm Butler. Um, that's the only time I really heard of the guy all year. I mean, you think of the Patriots, you think of Revis, you think of Browner, you think of Arrington, even Logan Ryan, and then there's this fifth guy, Malcolm Butler, who you know could have been the MVP with all the plays I just ran down, mentioned uh, high-impact situations. So just a crazy game, a competitive game, and you know definitely opportunities for both teams. And you know Seattle, for a while, it didn't look like they could complete a pass, but, you know, Again, they started attacking the fourth and fifth corners, you know, Arrington uh, with Chris Matthews, which, I mean, that's unbelievable for a guy with zero career targets to have the, the game he did in the Super Bowl. Um, you know, he looks like a guy that kind of reminded me of Martavis Bryant impact, just like he came in, made some deep ball catches, red zone. Um, I mean, he could be maybe a number three receiver for them next year uh, because, again, you definitely have some issues with the receivers on the Seahawks. The whole field was undrafted receivers. Uh, But, you know, Russell Wilson can make those deep throws, um, put the ball good placement for the most part until he didn't on the short one. But um, (laughs) I guess we'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. The only other thing, you know, Scott, for me, uh, New England offensively, since we, we kind of focused a little bit on uh, and focusing on that side of the ball, New England really did a good job of exemplifying how you could expose that Seattle defense by by spreading them horizontally and and making them, you know, move across the field, uh, especially obviously when you're, you know, you're limited in your depth of your cornerbacks. And the New England came into this game with with more you know, wide receivers active and, and spreading the field with, you know, four wide receivers, having Gronk out, three wide receivers, you know, spreading with the with the short crosses, all that that kind of stuff. Uh, and they do have to attack the Seattle defense because they play so much of that cover three with their their cornerbacks worried about the deep boundaries and the, and the deep safety. You've got to stretch the field and you've got to you beat them horizontally like that. 
Uh, and that's what I thought Denver was going to do more of last year. And, and obviously they weren't able to, they, they really didn't give uh, Peyton didn't have enough time uh, to do it last year in the pocket. And obviously Seattle was a little more healthy. Um, but uh, you, you definitely have to look at the Seattle team and, and they still have such potential for long-term health uh, in terms of the success of the franchise. If they can, they can keep their core guys there with Russell Wilson's big contract coming. They've got such such talent there defensively and talent with with Wilson and, and Wilson, you know Wilson didn't have a great game. He only completed twelve passes. Uh, I don't think you can say that the run game was completely shut down for for Seattle, which is what some people have said in regards to the call. We'll get that a little later. Um, he only completed twelve passes, but he had some big passes, and those some of those big passes were the ones that kept them in the game. You know, the deep balls to Matthews, uh, the deep one to Curse that that was a miraculous catch. And those were were very significant game changing plays that kept the Seattle offense moving the ball and kept them kept them scoring. Um, but the run game was still the lifeblood of the offense. I mean, they ran the ball what twenty nine times. Um, I think. I think it was, they had 20 successful runs and like 10 or and like nine successful passes. I think something like that. I I, I marked it down, but uh, the the run game is still the lifeblood of that offense, and the run game is a, really still the reason why some of those deep passes were were available. Put a lot of stock into stopping Marshawn Lynch and not letting him just go off completely. Obviously, he still managed over 100 yards on on 24 carries. But uh, those deep passes, a lot of them there because New England, you know, would not necessarily use as many deep safeties and bring them closer to the line of scrimmage. Run game still a lifeblood of that offense. And so while they were able to get some deep passes with Wilson and Matthews and Curse, uh, you still have to focus on on what got you there. And that's let's go ahead and talk about this end of the game call, Scott. You get down, uh, you get the deep pass to Curse, you run the ball, Marshawn Lynch to the four yard line or from the, from the five to the one yard line, four, four yards. And you've got 26 seconds left. So let's ignore how much time they let us run, run off the clock until that point. Ignore the fact that New England should have taken a timeout at that point. And just say, you've got one timeout left. You've got second down one yard to go to win the Super Bowl, And, and you're in a situation, the Seattle Seahawks where you need the touchdown to win the game. What do you do? Uh, not every team necessarily runs the ball, but I think if you're Seattle, the I understand the defense that Pete Carroll gave. I understand the reasons why you might want to pass the ball, but for me, it still doesn't outweigh the matchup that you got. And and again, what brought you to that point? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, they they botched the whole thing when they called timeout at 106. When they called that second time out at one of those six, the whole mentality should have been run the ball. We are going to run this in and win this game. And to me, I don't want to throw Russell Wilson under the bus too much, but you know, I think if they had a veteran quarterback, uh, you know, a Brady, a Manning, even an Eli Manning, if they had one of those guys at quarterback, they win this game because those guys know how to run the no huddle, how to get plays in quickly, get everything lined up and go. And, yeah, we've seen in games against the Patriots before, big games, you know, they ran the ball in. You know, Joseph had died in the 2006 AFC Championship. You know, Eli Manning giving it to Ahmed Bradshaw in the Super Bowl. 
you know, kind of a let them score situation, which, you know, the Patriots, you have to consider that there. I don't think that's the right strategy at all, but, you know, it's something that they could could have considered. But um, to me, if they had one of those quarterbacks running the no huddle there, they would have won this game. And, you know, the whole mentality should have been we are going to run the ball. So when you run it on first down, four-yard run, and I mean, it's, Marshawn Lynch was not going down right away all night. I mean, they, he was tough to uh, tough running. And, again, all the adrenaline in his body at that moment, knowing that you're so close, I don't see any way that he could be stopped on, you know, two or three more plays there. And to me, they took way too much time. They should When they ran it for four yards, they should have been in hurry-up mode, no huddle, snap the ball with about 40, 35, 40 seconds left. Have your next play. They took too long. They thought maybe Belichick would call timeout. I think people calling Belichick a genius for not calling timeout are absolutely retarded. I think he just got lucky that they did what they did because he gave absolutely no time for the offense to answer, and he put everything on the defensive stop, which, again, how many defenses can get that stop? on Marshawn Lynch in that situation. And he basically just was satisfied with the formation that they had a goal line defense they subbed in and Seattle brought in three receivers. And that's why if I'm Seattle at 106, I go with a heavy formation and the whole mentality, we're running this in. Call your run plays then. And you run it on first down, you get four yards. You run it on second down around 35, 40 seconds. You get up hurt if you have to get up and hurry to the line. You do it again. You run your next play. You run the ball. If they somehow stop you again, then you you know maybe New England calls their timeout. Then you call your timeout and you run it yeah. again on fourth down. I mean, there that's, was enough time. Go ahead. No, that's 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 my my thing is is when you're talking about that. If you know Pete Carroll and, and the offense, they were so worried about. Uh, you know, wanting to <clears throat> wanting to make sure they had time for fourth down and wanting to make sure that, you know, they, they didn't want to run the ball because then they thought, well, well, then there might, you know, you, you would have to use your timeout and then you you would be forced to pass it on third down. No, just just I, I mean, I'm with you. You run the ball your first three downs. And <clears throat> if you don't make it by then, then you call your timeout after that last play. You by that. There's no way that you wouldn't be able to get off. Th- you know, two more runs in 26 seconds and not still have at least a couple seconds left. If you are, then you're, you're taking way too time, too much time to, to get your hurry up and snap the ball. Uh, then you can call a timeout and say, okay, now it's fourth down. What do we do? This is where we're going to, you know, we can either pass the ball or run it to the last play of the game. I, I just don't see any, you know, excuse here to say, we're going to take the ball out of our best player's hand. Uh, Scott, you know, the numbers, but I'm pretty sure, uh, Seattle this year, I believe they were second in the league uh, in power run situations, which is, I think, two or less yards to go, third or fourth down or at the goal line. Uh, And they were second in the league, 81% success rate. New England defense dead last in the league in those situations with allowing an 81% success rate. So, I mean, everything in this situation tells you to run the ball. Right. And I mean, I don't worry about Marshawn Lynch getting stopped at the one-yard line like four times out of five or something this year. I don't care about that. I don't care that he got stopped earlier in the game out of different formations. With the game on the line, you saw how great how you know, he got those four yards with so much ease. And I thought actually they gave him a bad spot. He looked like he was closer to the half-yard line. 
I mean, the way he ran there, there's just no way I think that they stopped him there. And there's no way that what they did call was a um, better option, especially with the offense that they have. I mean, come on, Ricardo Lockett? I mean, at least draw it up for, like, Doug Baldwin or something. But, I mean, Ricardo Lockett, uh, I mean, the guy doesn't have many catches in his career. And, you know, he's not used to running. Again, this whole offense is just not used to running those plays. And you have a short quarterback. I mean, they used to, like, the play action. They like bootlegs. They like throwing the running backs, tight ends. That's the good offense down there. It's not the quick slant, not at all. And to me, they took too much time. You know, running it down to 26 seconds, that created this situation where he got so worried about what to call. They took too much time. And to me, in that situation, down four, you got to just, I think, at 40 seconds, anything under 40 seconds is good. I think you cannot fear the offense, you know, coming down the field, getting the field goal, because you know they're not going to go for the touchdown. There's not enough time. They're going to play for the field goal. Um, and, again, it's a dink and dunk offense that could not hit you on a big play all night, really. And you can't fear that getting in the field goal range. And even if they do, so what? Your team is 5-0 and in overtime the last couple of years. You come out three times and right down the field for a touchdown. Who cares about overtime? I mean, it's not a big deal anymore. It's more fair. So you can't worry about that. You have to trust your defense there not to give up the big play. I mean, I think I've tracked, again, you get any more, you get the ball to the 20-yard line after a kickoff. So let's say you got to go at least 40 yards to give Goskowski a decent chance at a field goal. There's been like 18 drives in the last 30-some years that have gone 40-plus yards for a field goal in the last 40 seconds. Okay, there's been like seven touchdowns, including some Hail Marys and laterals. So it's just not something that happens. So, to me, they wasted way too much time. Should have ran on second down around 40 seconds. Uh, and, again, they could have ran it two more times if necessary with that timeout. So, to me, completely botched the situation. Uh, should have been a run. Should have been run all the way. And, again, the very first thing I wrote in my Super Bowl preview, key to the game, run to win. And I never – say that never no, <laughs> never, but never never that's exactly what happened I'm, they they went against who they are at the worst possible moment yeah again this is who seattle is i mean they are Mar- marshawn lynch encapsulates who that team is perfectly uh not just on the field but off the field as well really uh but you look at at this call and I don't know if, if you can call it the worst call in history because I haven't watched every play call in history and there's been thousands and whatever. <laughs> I, I think you can certainly say it's the most costly play call in history. I mean, the, the, the Seattle is is literally seconds away from winning this game, uh, winning the Super Bowl. And it, the play call, it was it was, you know, they say. Games don't they, they come down to one play. Some people say, well, there's there's a whole lot more than that. This one was down to one play or or maybe two or three plays if you don't turn the ball over and you actually run the ball in. Uh, this was the game, and and they made I, – I mean, I, I think, Scott, and I know you agree with me, I, they made the wrong call. Um, is the, Again, is there a reason why you might call pass? There's a reason why they did what they did. Yes, but that doesn't make it correct. And and even yes, we you can say it's results based analysis that because they threw the I, I mean as soon as they lined up in shotgun, I'm looking at this like what what are you guys doing? Like why are you're you're a foot from the goal line and you're a, you have a very strong power running team? Why are you lining up in shotgun? Uh, 
So I, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say this is even just results based. I think you look at this and it it was Ill, it just wasn't the logical correct call. Um, and again, results based, it was I think the most costly call in history. Yeah, I think it's the costliest interception in NFL history. And I went through the research of that pretty thoroughly. I thought in my article to recap it. And I mean, again, it's it's a four point game, one yard line, twenty six seconds to go to the Super Bowl. I mean, what can possibly compare to this? I mean, you mentioned some plays like Red Right 88, but, I mean, those were earlier round playoff games. There was Weber stuff in that game that you could bring up uh, with the Brown, Browns down by two points or whatever, kick a field goal when they called a pass. But they had the league MVP, and they didn't have a good – I don't even know who the running back was for the Browns in 1980. It wasn't Ernest Biner. It was before that. So, I mean, this is Marshawn Lynch, the best runner in the league. And, again, Russell Wilson, no disrespect, but that's not his pass. That's that's my whole beef. If you want to call a pass, bring the 6'5 Matthews in and throw a fade, which, again, I hate those calls too. But Especially you know, they, since they actually they lined up. Uh, yeah. The guy who Butler, who made the interception, he lined up in off coverage on, on that play, which is the same. You know, they lined up in that off coverage on that touchdown uh, in the first half. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, that's like a low-risk kind of play. You rarely see that intercepted. And I guess uh, the reason they couldn't, they didn't have Matthews in there is because he doesn't really know the offense. So you're you know, hurry up, whatever, no huddle package. He doesn't know the plays. But uh, sticking him out there and telling him to run a fade can't be that hard. But, uh, you know, I'd rather see that. Or, again, you have Russell Wilson, one of the quickest quarterbacks in football, you know, a bootleg or something, a run-pass option for him. Again, that's mm-hmm. the whole beef, I think. it's. I understand the logic they were going with, you know, with the passing and because of the time, the timeout. But, again, I just completely disagree with how much time they wasted, and I completely disagree with the type of play, pass play, because it was dangerous. It's a small window. I mean, Butler had to completely not read the play for it to work. But if he took – I mean, if he went to the outside and then – cut inside, maybe he doesn't get there, but he was going inside for the ball the entire time. He was going to get there as soon as the ball arrived. It was going to be very tight, and again, I still think even if Wilson puts it on him, I think he gets tackled short unless he breaks the tackle, but um, you know, it's just such a stupid play uh, from the one-yard line of all things. We know every pass from the one-yard line into a tight window unless you're going to do play action and you know try to freeze people I mean, unless there is some kind of uh, fake or something to make the defense hesitate. And it was a quick pass, and that's just not what this offense does. I mean, I've watched 1,900 plays the last three seasons. That just is not what they do. Uh, so, I, again, I just can't, I just can't get it. I, I, love that, I love that Chris <laughs> Collinsworth really called them out on it. I love that he did that because it's just it's unbelievable. Um, that that happened. I mean, again, Butler made a very nice play. He'll probably never have another bigger play than that in his career. But, um, I mean, the, the opportunity should have never been there. And I think you know, if we could talk real quick about Wilson, you know, I, again, like I said, the co- it's the costliest interception in NFL history, yet I think he's going to get a pass for it. I mean, if, if Peyton Manning or Tony Romo threw that, oh, my God, they would be buried under the ground right now somewhere. I mean, it would just be the end of them. Uh, in the media, but you know, it's Russell Wilson, his third year, he won the Super Bowl last year, so he gets a bit of a pass from the media, and you know, I think people look at it as 
he never should have been throwing in the first place. They should have just been running. And I think that's going to be the legacy of, I mean, it depends what kind of career Wilson has yeah. from this point on. But I think the legacy of that play will be, why the hell were they throwing it in the first place? It's not, it's not going to be a man with a terrible throw. <laughs> and, yeah, and it should I, be. I, 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 mean, I agree. It wasn't like it wasn't like Wilson threw it directly at a defender. It wasn't it wasn't a terrible throw. It wasn't ideal. It, it should have been back shoulder. It should have been, uh, you know, getting it into the body of the receiver instead of making him extend in that situation. Um, it wasn't a good throw. Uh, it wasn't a terrible throw. But but the thing about it was, and Scott, you mentioned this. Butler was going for that pass all the way. As soon as they lined up with those receivers stacked like that, I mean, it was it was it was just pinpointing a pick play right there. I mean, that was, it was like, okay, Butler said, I mean, but that's what exactly what he said after the game. I knew they were going to run a pick play. As soon as he broke, I mean, he breaks to the inside almost simultaneously with Lockett. As soon as that ball is snapped and Wilson looks that way, he is, he is just uh, shoots from a cannon towards that slant spot. Um, and it's good coaching. It's good preparation. Uh, it's a good play, obviously, it, from a physical standpoint for Butler to be able to not only get there as quickly as he did, and, and but hang on to the ball. Um, but again, you're you're throwing the ball into the middle of the field where a lot of hands could get on the ball. It could have been tipped. It could have you know floated up in the air and had somebody else pick it off. Um, there's just a lot of a lot of things that could go wrong. And when you're in such a high stress, high pressure situation. Last again for the Super Bowl for your season on the line. Uh, it's just ah man, it was just so hard to watch, and so hard to see the looks on the faces of the Seahawks on the sidelines after after the interception. Obviously, Richard Sherman's gone viral. Sherman. Uh, Pete Carroll's reaction has also gone viral a little bit. That was also just almost as gut wrenching, not quite. But uh, I, you feel bad for Seattle at the same time. You got to give credit for again to. Uh, New England for what they were able to do uh, for uh, the coaches. Actually, actually, Malcolm Butler wasn't even on the field. It was actually a, a was a two tight end or a two uh, two cornerback goal line defense, and the the co- coaches sent Butler out to counter the three receivers, uh, and and Butler ended up making the play. So a, a good job by New England. Credit them for the Super Bowl win. Uh, but let's talk about Scott. What the Super Bowl means for the legacies and and the let let's put this in perspective let's start with this this seattle team is not the same seattle team that won the super bowl last year and i think there's there's so much hyperbole going on about this this team um and part of it is because of the goat discussion with tom brady and quarterbacks and we'll get to that but but let's just look at this one piece right now the seattle team is not the same as it was last year. Not only did they lose their starting cornerback uh, opposite uh, Sherman, obviously they've replaced him with Maxwell and he's done a good job, but we talked about the injuries. Uh, we just look, just look at what the team did this season when they were healthy, the, the team wasn't as good in the regular season as they were last year. I mean, they were, they were still good and the defense was still arguably uh, if it was, it was still the best in the league, but it wasn't nearly as dominant as it was last year. Uh, we saw Denver go in there and and nearly pull it off in overtime. We saw Green Bay dominate most of the game last week uh, or two weeks ago before you know choking it up in the end. They should have won that game and they lost in overtime. Um, we saw this team lose to Kansas City. We saw them lose to what St. Louis. Um, we saw them you know, be really not impressive at all against Oakland. We saw both these teams do that. 
but this team was not nearly as dominant as, as it was last season. So for anybody to say, you know, the Patriots just dominated, you know, this, this all time historic defense, blah, blah, blah. It, it's just not correct. It's not, you can't say it. No, I mean, they, they beat up Farrell Sarmer for the most part. And they, oh, this wasn't the guy that you expected to play a big role in this game. And, um, Again, the injuries, I mean, we're talking about some Tommy John surgery, torn MCLs, uh, some pretty crazy stuff that guys were playing on. And um, not to throw Richard Sherman under the bus, too, but, I mean, I, I like the guy. I think he's calmed down ever since the Crabtree explosion. And I, you know, I love how he kind of challenges the league in the media sometimes. And uh, I felt bad for him at the end of the game when they showed him. But, you know, again, it, it's, a criti- it's a legit criticism in his game that he does not – shadow the number one receiver because in this game they really could have used him on Edelman uh, down the stretch and Edelman was fantastic in the fourth quarter uh, I mean the play of the game at third and 14 I mean if they don't convert that I mean this could be game over and Edelman took that huge hit from Chancellor um, you know came through with the touchdown later just unbelievable quarter from him and you know to me that's a situation where if you're not covering Gronkowski uh, you got to be on Edelman. I mean, that's their biggest threat. That's their main guy. And you got Edelman on a big third down, running free across the field. You have a lineman dropping into coverage. That's just terrible defense. And, you know, they picked that third down up in the red zone and got a touchdown. If you can hold them to a field goal there, maybe it's a different ending. But to me, you know, that's something that is a flaw in Sherman's game if they don't ask him to cover the number one receiver all over the field like a Darrell Revis. But, um, yeah, I just think the Patriots definitely had the best game plan of any team against Seattle. It was the best yards after the catch day for New England all season, the worst for Seattle's defense. And maybe some of the injuries contributed to that, some a lot of missed tackles and such. But, um, yeah, I mean, it wasn't an all-time great defense that they had going on the field there. I mean, um, but, you know, that's going to be what some people remember I think a lot of it depends on what Seattle does from here on out, too. But, uh, again, this is one of the most competitive teams in NFL history. You know, they got that record now, 70 games. They've been at least within a score in the fourth quarter. Um, I mean, 70 games, it's unbelievable to not, you know, have a dud at any point. Even when they've been down 21 points in games, they come back and won, or they've been right there on the road even. I mean, just such a good team, and you wonder if they can keep it together. Uh, you know, salary cap's not something I do a lot of, have ever done much work on, but, you know, I'm just curious, how many $10 million a year players can you afford? And you look at, you know, what Wilson could be getting, what Lynch could get if they need to bring him back, which I think they do. Uh, you already have, um, what, Chancellor, Sherman, and Thomas, I think, are all, at least two of those guys are in that $10 million plus range. I mean, how many can you afford? And we talked about that with Green Bay. I mean, looking at, you know, Rodgers, Clay Matthews, and Nelson, can they afford Cobb on another deal like that? And it just comes too much on the salary cap at some point. So, you know, that's the great thing about Seattle. They have so many good young players, but when you have to pay them all at the same time, uh, that makes filling out the roster very difficult. And this was definitely a Super Bowl that showed, you know, the importance of the first man down to number 53, and, um, you know, some of their deficiencies at wide receiver and cornerback uh, uh, definitely bit them in the end. 
the other thing that you know, you want to put this in perspective for New England and, and legacy and everything else is is from a coaching perspective. Um, Bill Belichick and and Tom Brady. You know, I when you talk about the greatest of all time, whether you're talking about quarterbacks and Tom Brady or you're talking about coaches and and Bill Belichick and his his stance there, uh, it's it's hard because you've got players from different areas, you've got players and coaches in different situations. Uh, you've, you've got a lot of different factors to factor in, and it's it's difficult to do that fairly. And people come at them from different angles, and they come up with different you know, different answers. Uh, neither of those questions are probably ever going to be answered. I think one thing is is it, that's a little bit easier. Uh, Bill, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady together as a quarterback-coach combo, um, their, I think their stance, their standing in the quarterback coach combo of all time that list i think that is much more set in stone than either of their standing in their individual rankings if that makes any sense yeah you know obviously they've had so much success they've been to six super bowls they've been to nine conference championships they've won four um the consistency between you know having the two there I think that is is absolutely fair to say. If you if you want to go out and say Tom Brady is the greatest quarterback of all time, that's great. I'm going to disagree. If you want to say those two are the best quarterback coach of all time, I'm going to be a lot more uh, sympathetic towards your your point of view. I, for me, I didn't see Walsh and Montana. Um, Brady and Belichick are the best combination that I've seen, and it's not close. Yeah, and I think they kind of had that locked up even before Sunday. I just think, you know, the before 15 years together, for, I guess 13, that Brady actually started. Uh, you know, Bill Walsh and Montana basically were together for eight years starting uh, together with Montana as a starter. And, you know, you did have that black period that people rarely ever bring up where Montana went one and done three years in a row in the playoffs putting up a total of nine points on the board. And, you know, people would never really bring that up yet. And all three definitely. Hmm? And all three seasons together, put up nine points. No, in 1985 through 87, they lost uh, three playoffs. They only put up nine points on the board on those three games? And those, yeah, yeah, Steve Young came off the bench in one of them. uh, But, yeah. Montana, when Montana was in the game, he only put up a total of nine points total over three playoff games. Unbelievable. So, but at the same time, it kind of fueled the greatest playoff run in history with Montana. After that, he just dominated. But uh, George Seifert was the coach in 1989. But, yeah, I think, yeah, Bradshaw, I just can't rank rank Terry Bradshaw something that that high. I mean, he's up up there with Chuck Knoll. But, um, you know, I, and then you have Dan Marino and Don Shula, obviously never won the Super Bowl, but, you know, that's, they have the most wins for a long time. But, um, yeah, I think definitely they Brady and Belichick rank as the top uh, coach and quarterback combination. And individually, I think Belichick will get the credit, I think, for the salary, doing this in the salary cap area. I mean, basically, what, 14 winning seasons in a row. That's uh, pretty impressive. And a lot of those were, you know, first round by kind of seasons, you know, not just nine and seven stuff. But um, you know, I think that will really look good on him. But um, again, the, the quarterback thing. I mean, somebody asked me if I'm going to move Brady up in my rankings. I had him at fifth. I don't think I'm going to. I mean, I might put him at four for third by the time he retires. Depends how he finishes. 
I mean, 38-year-old quarterbacks just don't magically get better. So the ending is pretty near. But, um, again, I just think for me it, it's always been a, a playing style kind of thing where, again, I just do not get impressed from the dink and dunk. And uh, this was a master class performance of dinking and dunking. Uh, against, and that's the smart thing to do. And, again, I think we had a good discussion on Football Outsiders. Why don't more teams do this kind of stuff where we know that passes over the middle, short passes in general, are high percentage, easier to complete. And, you know, why don't you see more teams do it? And, you know, I guess part of it is you need guys like Gronkowski and Edelman who, you know, don't come out of the factory. I mean, you know, little slot receivers that can take punishment and stay healthy, they're hard to come by. And, uh, you know, it's just an example. I mean, you think of a fourth and two, Dallas in Green Bay, and, you know, Tom Brady would probably throw a little angle route to Cole Beasley for a first down, and Tom uh, Tony Romo throws the deep ball to Des Bryant because – he knows he can make that play, and he Roman knows he can make that throw, and you live with the consequences of what I still think was a catch. But uh, anyway, <laughs> you know that's 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 not a throw that Brady would make in that situation, right? I mean, it's no, highly no, unlikely no. he would ever make that on, on fourth and two, and some quarterbacks do, and um, you know they live with the consequences. And uh, again, is is it a better um, again is it a better way of doing offense? I mean, you could argue maybe, but. You know, the Patriots don't always lead the league in scoring. And, you know, obviously the Super Bowls, they've been, again, they could be 0-6, they could be 6-0 in these Super Bowls. So they haven't scored um, that many points in half of them. But, uh, again, I mean, it's just a way of doing offense differently, and they've always been ahead of the curve. Uh, you know, with the uh, shotgun, the spread offense, they were ahead of the curve on that. The two tight end sets uh, until one of them became a murderer. Uh, that was working. And, again, they always – seem to be ahead of the curve offensively with Brady and um you know the success speaks for itself but again I still I got I have more Manning I have Montana and I have United to the top three and I just don't see myself really changing that um unless Brady seems to have some unbelievable finish ready for his career and again I think they have a team that's capable of doing you know more great things in the future but um Again, I just think the playing style has always been something that I just can't uh, look over. Uh, just again, I mean, you have people saying, "Oh, it was the greatest fourth quarter in Super Bowl history." I don't even think it was the greatest fourth quarter by a, a quarterback in the Super Bowl in, in, in a Super Bowl featuring Tom Brady. I mean, we had Jake DeLone through for over 200 yards and two touchdowns against him, and he just didn't get the ball last. And, I mean, we had Kurt Warner against the Pittsburgh Steelers, number one defense. He threw for 200, I think, 24 yards in the fourth quarter and two touchdowns. But, you know, people forget that because Roethlisberger the homes. Or Joe Montana against the Bengals, 195 yards in the fourth quarter, two touchdowns, um, spectacular drive at the end, you know, highlight play the Taylor, catch the rice over the middle, impressive stuff. You know, to me, I just look at Sunday and – I mean, they dinked and dunked them. They beat Farrell Simon at the one-yard line twice. Should have been two touchdowns that way. And, again, I just think, you know, aside from the third and 14, which was fantastic from Brady to Elman, really the one time in the game, the first time in the game, he really stepped up in the pocket and made the big throw down the field. And uh, that was a fantastic play right there. But, again, I just I find it hard to get impressed with all the other um, little passes over the middle. And that's just – my personal view of quarterback play. And people say, you know, your view of greatness might be limited. But, again, you know, I like the way Manning plays the game. I like the way uh, Steve Young played, uh, Ben Roethlisberger and Tony Romo with that 
improv uh, visual style. Um, yeah, Brett Favre, not a big fan of him because all the stupid turnovers. But um, again, I think Russell Wilson's an impressive player uh, the way he uses his mobility, um, that kind of style. And again, I mean, um, Aaron Rodgers like love love watching the accurate throws, the crazy throws, effortless. You know, Drew Brees when he's on his game, you know, the downfield accuracy very good. And again, there's Brady. Uh, it's just it's not the same for me. Uh, and again, how many quarterbacks can you say have had this have had anywhere even close to his success that were you know not mobile that were you know just kind of the dink and dunker and uh, you know I mean Alex Smith <laughs> he runs a dink and dunk offense and it's not very good uh, it doesn't work that well but again you know that's kind of the class of quarterback you look at uh, associated with physical skills but. Um, you know, again, it's just my opinion, and it's funny how you get attacked for opinions and stuff that can never be. I mean, no one can ever prove who the greatest quarterback is. It's always going to be an opinion. There's never going to be an actual answer. It's just personal preference. But uh, to me, I just think a lot of the arguments that people use are absolutely bogus when, I mean, again, you have a goal line stand at the one-yard line. I mean, again, if, if Malcolm Butler doesn't make that pick and they run the ball and get a touchdown – is Brady the greatest quarterback? I mean, does that play that has nothing to do with him being on the field validate, you know, his performance? Does it change his performance at all? And the answer is no, but we know that getting the win is what makes people acknowledge it. If he lost the game, then maybe they would start looking at the interceptions he threw and um, maybe some wasted um, plays. But, again, it's just people are always going to argue, and I know how I'm going to argue, and they're going to have to – stick to what they do so uh, i'm not going anywhere and that's the thing scott is the the greatest of all time discussion is always going to be a diametric opposition on how you look at on how you define great uh you know a lot of people uh, in the end define great by how many championships you win and and there's i mean i i hate it because Football is the ultimate team game, and it's a it's a saying that gets said a lot, but I mean it's true. Uh, football, you've got you've got fifty two other guys on the players. You've got you know what twenty five coaches. You've got you know then the other team. Obviously, I mean there's just so many factors. It's not it's it's not the same as basketball. And even in basketball, we look at you know we look at Michael Jordan and we say he's the greatest ever, even though uh, you know uh, Bill Russell won what like a, eleven championships. Um, you, you know, the, the championship discussion for me is just, it's, it's an easy way out. Um, especially when you've got sustained, uh, I mean, for me, I, and Scott, I'm with you with Peyton as the greatest ever part of it's because, I mean, I'm not that old. I didn't get to watch Montana very much. I, I, you know, I've watched a lot, uh, afterwards after his career has been over, you know, but, but I didn't get to watch it unfold. I've gotten to watch Manning and Brady unfold. Um, Manning for me has been a dominant quarterback for 15 years. He has just dominated teams. Brady for me, he doesn't dominate teams like, like, like Peyton did. He, I mean, he wins and he does a really good job. He, he dissects people, but outside of, of what, maybe two or three seasons, uh, Brady isn't a guy that just overwhelmed the defenses. And that's just, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't surpass what Peyton did. Um, in terms of you know postseason play, you look at statistics. Uh, he's you know 
Peyton Manning has a, a better postseason DVOA than Brady does, and you've done a lot of work on that. Uh, his his postseason passer rating was the ex- was was higher uh, until this year, and I think now it's a half a point lower than Brady's postseason passer rating. I mean, it's it's the the postseason success comes down to a lot more than just wins and losses. Uh, and Brady's been paired up with the best coach of all time. He's had a, a stout defense that hasn't let him down in the playoffs like like Manning's has. And this is a discussion that has been and will continue to go on forever. Um, but it's just so easy to say, well, he's the greatest because he won four Super Bowls. And for me, it's I can't bring it down to one player for for winning Super Bowls like that. I just I I can't. And if you can, and if that's your opinion, that's fine. It's certainly defensible. It's certainly one that's going to be very popular over the next six months. Uh, but I don't share it. And I don't think that that's, I, I think it hits, there's certainly room for both sides. Unfortunately, not everybody agrees. And and if you go look at Scott's Twitter feed from today, uh, <laughs> for some reason, people get uh, very uh, extremely upset about this issue if you don't agree. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things, sports and politics. Well, since we started at four o'clock, this thing says I have 308 new interactions and no, I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to really plan on reading them. I'll read some, but it can only take so much before you just feel like everyone. I don't know how you do it, man. I don't know. I, I'm, I mean, I get enough just with like, you know, the 3000 Twitter followers. <laughs> oh man. Anyway. Uh, well, Scott, I think the only other thing I want to ask you from today, I was trying to go down my list and make sure I had everything knocked out from the key points for us to talk about. Um, the Patriots' legacy in terms of a dynasty. We saw them cap off 2000s in the start of the 2000s with with a, a Super Bowl in 2001. We saw them win two more in the next three years. They had the big gap. Uh, they went back to Super Bowls in 2007 and 2010 or 2011. 2011. 2011. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, obviously come up short. And then we saw them cap off this 15-year run with another Super Bowl win. And it, it has a very – Tom Brady isn't retiring, but Belichick isn't retiring. But it, it did have a bit of a, a finality to it, kind of a finality feeling to it. They overcame the you know David Tyree catch a little bit by overcoming the, the, uh, the curse catch in this game and still winning. Uh, you know, they are able to, to overcome the – well, they haven't won a Super Bowl since Spygate talk by winning a Super Bowl here. Uh, Brady was able to get his fourth, which evens him with Montana. But Belichick was able to get his fourth. They cemented their best quarterback uh, coach combo. It had a bit of finality to it that to cap this 15 year run with a Super Bowl. Does this really leave the Patriots with the best or at least uh at least the longest. I think I think for certain the the longest dynasty ever. But does this leave it as you know the best dynasty in NFL history? Yeah, I mean that's a very difficult thing to answer. I mean it's I mean you know did the dynasty end? I mean uh, the Steelers yeah. won two Super Bowls after New England's last, uh, third one. The Giants won two head to head. So 
I mean, you know, you're always looking for that next team. Um, and again, I think the Patriots are, you know, right there with the Seahawks for, you know, the team of this decade. We'll see how that shakes out. And some, like I, you know, I wrote a really long article on Bleacher Report a couple of years ago about the next dynasty, and you know, I picked Seattle. And yeah, you know, I think yeah, no one's ever lost a Super Bowl this early and had a dynasty. But you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, things don't. We only have a, a sample size of about five or six dynasties, but um, you know, a lot of the traits are similar. And sometimes you don't know who the team of the decade is until the decade's over. I mean. You talk about the 70s. You didn't know who the team of the 70s was until the Steelers beat the Cowboys to get that fourth ring in the 1978 season. Uh, in the 80s, you didn't know the 49ers were the team of the decade until they got their third and fourth ring at 1988-1989. So those things take time. Uh, yeah, I think the 49ers, they won five Super Bowls in 14 years. Um, you know, the Patriots have four in 14 years, so that's very similar. Um, you know, obviously with the Patriots, you have the same coach and same quarterback. Everything else changes. Uh, with the 49ers, you have, you know, Bill Walsh and Joe Montana. They went to George Seifert and Steve Young. Keep it going. Um, so, I mean, those are similar. I don't know. I think the Packers deserve a ton of credit for Lombardi's run. Uh, it was a smaller league then, but, you know, they were just so dominant. Um you know, there's a different game back then, but still, I mean, you have to respect all their Hall of Famers. And the Steelers won four in six years, which still hasn't been eclipsed. But, um, I mean, again, they're all great teams. They're all going to be memor- memorable. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't seem to put the Patriots number one. They just didn't dominate as much. And, again, I think, you know, you have to look at these nine seasons in between the Super Bowls where, you know, they had a lot of big game flops and, and they should have won. They should have went nineteen and zero. They should have won the Super Bowl in twenty ten. Um, you know, losing to the Jets was such a huge heartbreaker. And you know, they had the game with the Giants. That was another close Super Bowl. I mean, they've definitely had their chances. A state that claims the best dynasty, but uh, again, it's a difficult question. I mean, you, you have to answer. You know, did the dynasty end with the two thousand four team? I mean, the two thousand seven and beyond Patriots really bear little resemblance to those older Patriot teams that used to you know, win by the skin of their teeth and find ways to get upsets and beat all these teams with um, better talent. But, um, again, it's a, it, oh, it's another thing that people will debate endlessly, and, uh, you know, we'll just have to see where things go from here. Yeah, and I just, you know, for to see them come out and, and again, just dominate for 15 years like that, it's uh, – it's it's just it's a pleasure to watch even if you don't like New England you have to respect the uh, you know the consistency and and obviously the not just the consistency but the the high level success and and the ultimate success and winning four, four Super Bowls um, you know we haven't seen that in this era of football from anybody else uh, outside of you know individually Peyton Manning has been able to do it uh, but obviously on two separate teams. So, anyway, uh, New England, congratulations to them for the Super Bowl. As uh, unsufferable as it makes some of the Boston media, uh, congratulations to them. Rob Gronkowski has basically been like the nation's son uh, over the last you know week or so. Uh, not just 
the Super Bowl and and the post game stuff and the and the uh, parade, but also the the bit with Marshawn Lynch on Conan was amazing. It was just fantastic. He's he is <laughs> Gronk is one of those guys. I don't know how you cannot like him because not only is he he's the best player in his position by a wide margin, really, uh, but he's just I mean he is just a, a character and he's even I mean there's people who won't like his quote unquote antics, but. Uh, I mean, he is just, he's entertaining and that's, that's what the league's for. So uh, congratulations to him and, and Rivas, another guy who's uh, arguably, if, if not for sure, the, the best at his position, uh, getting their rings. Uh, Devin McCourty, obviously a, a very good safety as well, getting his, some of the vet guys there. Um, and then Brady and Belichick and the rest of the organization as well. They, they had a fantastic game plan all throughout the playoffs, I thought. I did a really good job executing it as well, and and they come out with with a very deserving Super Bowl win. Seattle will be fine. Uh, Scott, that's that's yep. the season, man. That is <laughs> that is the season. It's uh, it was a good. It was it was a, it was uh, good. It was a season that had its moments. Uh, a little bit too much off the field than anybody really wants to discuss or have happen. Uh, and not necessarily a uh, ending that either of us were enjoying all too much, but uh, it was a season that was that was entertaining. Yeah, I mean, can't ask for much more than the entertainment that the NFL brings. Yeah, you know, there were a lot of bad primetime games, uh, definitely a lot of blowouts. Uh, thank God for Twitter to make it more amusing in those <laughs> moments, but. Um, yeah, I mean, there were some. I mean, the playoffs. We had eight close games, uh, somewhat close. Um, so I mean, pretty competitive uh, stuff there. You like always like to see that at least. Um, pretend the Ryan Lindley game never happened. Uh, get get that out of there. Be eight out of ten games. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was a pretty uh, good season. I like to see better stuff off the field. And based on the way things have started this week, it's not going to be a good <laughs> off season. Um, Good Lord, I mean, Warren Sapp. I mean, Eric, what, did you see what Eric Weddle did to Sapp on Twitter? Oh, he destroyed him. It was, it was, it was so good. Oh, man. Now, now he's in the lineup. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, if you haven't seen it, it, it four, what was it, two, three, four years ago when he signed originally with San Diego with his big contract, uh, Warren Sapp yeah, tweeted uh, something about if San Diego's given this so many million dollar contract to a guy you, you couldn't even pick out of a lineup and and Weddle had it screenshotted and he put it in with a tweet and said now who's in the lineup it was great uh, if you haven't seen it go on and twitter Weddle's beard i think is his twitter handle it was great uh but yeah warren sapp dequel jackson was arrested for beating up a police pizza delivery guy uh what's his name the tackle for green bay uh was it yeah he he was arrested for a lot of things. I mean, he had he had what something so how many grams of weed and, and guns and money. Oh man, it was a mess. Uh Terrence Cody was arrested for uh, possessing an alligator, uh drugs <laughs> and something else. I don't know. A whole a whole lot of mess. <laughs> He was already out of out of Baltimore anyway, but it has not been a good start for the NFL to start the offseason. Hopefully things get a little bit cleaned up. But regardless, have fun with you on here, and uh, hopefully we can do this again 
next season. Have, have had a lot of fun in the last couple of years. What, it's been three years now, two years, three years, three years. Well, we got three and the three in the book. Three in the books. So now we got to get the that fourth one. That fourth is always the elusive fourth one. All right. Well, we really appreciate everybody listening this year. Uh, we had uh, I we had record numbers for this show uh, this season by far, especially throughout the playoffs, uh, especially the first couple rounds with the Colts still in it. Uh, had a lot of uh, listeners to this show. Really appreciate you guys continuing to listen. Uh, makes it uh, makes it all worth it for us. And uh, we'll look forward to keep doing this next year. And and we'll uh, add in some more Colts talk throughout the offseason. I might have a few Colts-centric shows just for Colts Authority Radio. Uh, but we, Scott and I will be back next uh, September, next August, maybe last week in August, do a preview show if we uh, nail down the details to do this again in 2015. But, again, really appreciate it. Scott, in the offseason, uh, where can everybody keep an eye on you and, and all the uh, research that you'll be doing? Yeah, I mean, we'll probably sparingly write for ESPN Insider. I know we've got some uh, one bold move series looking at each division starting next week. That'll be up there. But mostly I'll be on Football Outsiders, you know, writing various studies. I mean, stuff I did last year, looking at catch radius, looking – Maybe at some of this mobility stuff I did with Russell Wilson, might look at Kaepernick, Andrew Luck, maybe uh, see what goes with there. And you know, I'll be co-authoring uh, our book again, Football Outsiders Perspective. <laughs> Jesus, Football Outsiders Almanac 2015. I think I'm doing the Colts draft this year. I'm not. Don't quote me on that, but I think I am. So and right. AFC West, AFC West. I think I got those five teams. So I'll be working on that probably a lot, May, June, July. Um, so, yeah, just putting stuff, getting through the next seven months the best way I can and uh, working right. on whatever whatever is interesting. Uh, if you haven't purchased the uh, Football Outsiders Almanac before, uh, definitely give it a shot this year. Uh, it, it's always, I mean, it's chock full, not just of, of stat stuff, which obviously Football Outsiders does a fantastic job with all the guys there. Uh, but it's just it's entertaining too. Everybody who writes is a fantastic writer. Uh, they do a really good job with those those team chapters and and again the the statistics stuff alone in there is really makes it worth it. Uh, so give that a look this year and um, keep an eye out for Scott. He always does a lot of great stuff in the offseason, researching stuff that you would never hear uh, from anybody else. So uh, for me again, Colts Authority and Bleacher Report will have offseason content for Indianapolis all all for the next, what, six months, seven months. Uh, hopefully we can stick to the on-the-field stuff uh, instead of some of the off-field issues we've had to discuss lately. Uh, and we can, you can find us both on Twitter. And Twitter never has an off-season. So you can find us at ColtsAuth underscore Kyle for myself, F-O underscore Scott Kazmar, Scott with two T's, Kazmar with a K-A-C-S-M-A-R. Uh, and again, we really appreciate you all listening this year. And uh, we'll look forward to when we will be back, hopefully next season, August 2015. Here we come. Everybody have a great offseason. Uh, stay safe. And that includes you, NFL players, who are definitely listening to this podcast. Stay safe <laughs> and stay out of jail. See you guys next year.